Today's episode of The Shamrock is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a pop quiz. Do you think Notre Dame tickets are cheaper three weeks before the game or three hours? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is a leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. Welcome to the latest edition of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined by Matt Fortuna, somewhere uh, recovering from a wedding reception last night. Not his own, but um, delighted that he can join us to talk a very, very little about Bowling Green. But uh, certainly we will get, we'll get into that somewhat, but a lot more about USC, Michigan, and sort of where Notre Dame season can go from here. As a reminder, you are listening to our regular free episode of The Shamrock, our post-game reaction podcast. Uh, something to look forward to later this week for our bonus edition for our athletic subscribers. We'll be having A-list guest Bruce Feldman on to talk all things USC. Um, there is literally no one better plugged in, uh, who didn't play there at least, to USC than Bruce Feldman. Because um, I think that's part of the dynamics of the game next weekend. Does Notre Dame stick the knife in yet another USC head coach? But uh, Matt, I guess... I'm sure you probably were paying moderate attention to the Notre Dame Bowling Green, maybe uh maybe sort of an app alert type of uh watch while you're at while you're at the wedding. <laughs> yes. I, I had this special shutout alert app on my phone where like if Bowling Green was in the red zone, my phone would light up and, and buzz really loud and everyone would ask what's going on. It's kinda like those alarm emojis I tweet every time we have a a new pod drop, but they had a game yesterday then, huh? I, I saw the big news. They're going to have game day in Dublin, which I'm sure you're thrilled about. I, I know you and uh, Brian Hamilton are, are devoted followers of Aer Lingus uh, after your last disaster <laughs> there seven years ago. But uh, no, that game went about how we expected it to. Uh, I believe you used the term disaster porn in your game preview. I want to applaud you. I applaud you on Twitter. I, I want to applaud you on the podcast for for coming up with that phrase. And um, thank you. Uh, I think disaster porn is an apt description of uh, what Notre Dame did to BVG yesterday. By the way, happy belated birthday! I'm sure you're not feeling great yourself right now. Uh, how old are you, by the way, for all of our listeners? <laughs> uh, I am 42 years old, uh, and so it's sort of a uh, lying about your 40 is not just for recruits anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's for uh, middle-aged sports journalists. But, yeah, this is uh, not to rip Dan Rubenstein's drive chart analysis, but it was punt, 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 downs, punt, interception, missed field goal, punt, punt, punt. That was Bowling Green's offense yesterday. They had – Can't play BBG for that. of being on the same field. No. And it's – I mean, it was one thing Brian Kelly said after the game, which you rarely ever hear uh, a coach say. It's just like they just didn't have players to be on the field with us. Um I mean, it was. I've seen more competitive spring games at Notre Dame than what I was watching yesterday. Um, you know, and just like not to get too into the weeds with a fifty-two nothing blowout, but I thought Ian Book was was good, not perfect, um, which is saying something because he, if Javon McKinley catches that ball in the third quarter that hit him in the hands, Ian Book would have finished with twice as many touchdown passes as incompletions. Uh, Tony Jones could have run for three hundred yards if they gave him more than seven carries, which they were fine not doing. 
and Bowling Green was really no threat to do anything ever. So it was, uh, I think the, the output of it all, if there's something worth noting, is that Notre Dame is now top 15 nationally in scoring offense of 41 points per game. And they're top 15 nationally in scoring defense at 14.8 points per game. And that puts them in a group with Alabama, Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, and Georgia. That's it. Those are the teams that are top 15 in both. So regardless if you've played New Mexico and Bowling Green, regardless if you've already lost a game, which those other teams have not, um, that's just good company for Notre Dame to be. They're, they're sort of where where we expected them to be at 4-1. and one, But I think sort of how they're getting there in terms of the defense certainly being, I think, ahead of schedule of where we expected. That's that's a development worth tracking as the rest yeah, of the season Yeah, you make no unfolds. apologies for that stat. I mean, yeah, New Mexico and Bowling Green, so what? Wisconsin played USF, uh, Kent State yesterday. Uh, Penn State played Idaho and, and uh, Maryland, which apparently is in the Big Ten now, but never scores a point whenever they play their closest geographical rival in that league. But uh, I, I think that's about as sharp and as satisfied as one can possibly be when you play a team like Bowling Green. I mean, you, you go into it, at least we go into it, thinking we're not going to be able to learn a whole lot about this team. They're going to win. It's just a matter of how much and, and if they come out of it healthy. And, I mean, 52 nothing. Um, they cover the spread. They, they, they shut out Brian Van Gorder. Uh, I did appreciate your tweet, uh, GIF form only, of the last Notre Dame shutout because that gave us the high watermark of the Brian Van Gorder era at Notre Dame uh, with his uh, his fist pump, uh, uh, Jeff. Uh, did not see any of those yesterday from him. I didn't see any of him yesterday. Was there any like pregame handshake or postgame handshake or anything like that that you were able to to get your eyes on uh, at the stadium yesterday? There was, I believe, there was no postgame handshake. However, there was a very sad NBC image of him um, with in the with twenty seconds to go of him up in a press box. It's like a faraway shot, so it's a little bit blurry. The rain is falling in the image. He's just sort of packing up his briefcase, and they then they immediately hard cut to Clarkly high fiving uh, people in the press box as well. I'm so picturing Hugh uh, Freeze right now. The way you yeah, there was that. he was yeah he was nowhere to be found. Um, I, I didn't know which is fine. I didn't know he's not on the sideline anymore. Frankly, yeah, I mean he's he's up in the box, so he can uh, I think get a higher angle. What's happening? So I. These, this is probably more Brian Van Gorder analysis than anyone was expecting, or we should. We is should Notre Dame playing anyone like, big this um, week? Yeah, I, I agree. It was, yeah, we could we could spin this forward. We could have two USC podcasts, but I, I mean, I agree. It was just it was a very sharp performance, and it's this is sort of what those other teams that I that I listed. You know, the Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama. That's what they do to Bowling Green. They beat them fifty-two to nothing. They give them no hope, and then they get all their backups in and sort of learn something about them. So it's um, the USC game. I, I I don't think got any more or less interesting yesterday. USC was off. Notre Dame pounds Bowling Green, but there's if you get that one and then you set up the Michigan game, it's it's a rare instance where you, I mean you have this you have a chance to really throw two knockout punches in two games against your two biggest rivals, sending Clay Hilton's sort of administration into the point of no return and then the misery that you would leave in Ann Arbor as you hopped on the bus to head back home would also be uh, magnificent from a Notre Dame perspective. It's uh, it's just a rare, very rare back-to-back in terms of you would never play these teams twice in a row, uh, but then also the dynamics of those two programs compared to where Notre Dame is also pretty interesting. I, I, I thought, based on 
the way last season ended and even with the, the way the schedule set up for USC to begin this year, I thought there was a, you know, maybe a 50% chance that Clay Helding would not be USC's coach um, coming into the Notre Dame game, which uh, f- from a purely like statistical standpoint, I would have found fascinating because there was a stretch there where Brian Kelly faced four different USC coaches in four years. Uh, it was Kiffin in 12, Ed Odron in 13, Steve Sarkeesian 14, Clay Heldon as interim in 15. Um, obviously, Notre Dame's had more success against USC uh, under the Brian Kelly regime than they had in years past, six and three through nine games so far. Um, but, you know, the, the, it's going to be harder <laughs> when Urban Meyer's that coach. That it will be. But I do think um, it, it, they're just such a weird program. You know, you, you can't ever sleep on these guys or take them for granted. I don't say that so much from a rivalry standpoint as I do that. Like, they just have such good skill players every year that are the envy of 90% of the country. And, you know, we talk about USC and, you know, the disaster they've been the last decade and, and everything that's going on. But, you know, I just did the math really quickly before we got on here. Uh, in the Brian Kelly era, so since 2010, USC is 81 and 42, 65.8% uh, winning percentage. Notre Dame's 85 and 36, 70.2%. Like, I don't say it's a takeaway from Notre Dame at all, but, like, if that doesn't show you the difference in the floors and ceilings of both programs where Notre Dame's experiencing this once-every-three-decade stretch, frankly, under Brian Kelly, and they're only five percentage points better than USC, which has had three or four different head coaches in the last decade, I, I just think that that speaks to kind of the, the recession-proof nature of the USC job where it, the talent just comes to you. I mean, you know, the guy who's the head coach right now who's, obviously struggling, but did win a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12 title, got it as interim where he probably wouldn't have been a head coach anywhere else in any other situation. Um, it, it's just a fascinating job, a fascinating place uh, that always is churning out great players that you just can't take them for granted no matter what their record is. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, to put this in a cool one, if Notre Dame could find a five-star receiver in Fort Wayne and Goshen and uh, Valparaiso, that would sort of be what USC can do recruiting out there. I mean, the talent is absolutely incredible. And it's, like you said, recession proof is probably the best way to put it. I mean, I, I watch USC, and they, they're very much like a, uh, a punch-drunk opponent to me where they probably could land a few haymakers on you with Amon Ross St. Brown, Tyler Vaughn's, um, and that receiver core. I mean, Michael Pittman, I thought, has been excellent this year as well. So – that the matchups there with Notre Dame, I think, are really interesting because I wouldn't say Notre Dame's secondary is a weakness by any stretch, but they lost Sean Crawford uh, against Virginia. They're trying to figure out, okay, can you can you play Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, a rover, against USC's slot, which is usually Amon Ross St. Brown? That's that's not a great situation. Um, you're going to have to accommodate that if you're Clark Lee as as Notre Dame's defensive coordinator. But, I mean, on both lines, I don't think they're running the ball that well. I mean, their lead running back is Marquis Stepp, who Notre Dame had as a commitment and then walked away from uh, for academic reasons. It's not it's not a, a vintage USC team. I realize they have Stephen Carr, and he was a five-star and all that, but that he has not necessarily played like one. I don't think they're great on either line. They have some really good linebackers. What else is new? Um, it's just not, it's not a great USC team, and – can, is does anyone think USC is going to go on the road and handle adversity well in South Bend at night in late, in mid October? No, I, I, I don't, don't either. I mean, two years ago they came into this game and 
you know, Notre Dame looked really good, but there were still some questions because they hadn't beaten anyone after after losing to Georgia closely. And I mean, they just ran over, around, and through USC and, and basically could have named their score at the end, which was just crazy to see, to think about Notre Dame doing that to, to their rival um, and making it look like the varsity versus JV out there. I, I feel, well, I feel a lot worse, I should say, about this USC team than I did the 2017 USC team that ended up winning the Pac-12 title. Uh, they're, they're not very... With a, with a top five who, pick who had the, quarterback. The weight of the world on his shoulders, had no offensive line, and didn't have a single bye all, all year uh, during that season. Thank you, Larry Scott, for looking out for your, your blue bloods. But um, they don't defend the run outside the tackles really well. We don't know whether Keaton Slovis, the quarterback, is going to be there. We don't know if Talanoa Hafanga, the safety, is going to be there. They've both been out the last couple of weeks. They are coming off a bye for You've been practicing that, that all morning, <laughs> admit it. As they are with Jeremiah Oso-Koromoa. And uh, Myron, I'm just not even going to try with all these going at a raw two-way tongue twisters. Um, but, I mean, they're coming off a bye. Like, does that mean anything? I don't know. Um, they're The Pac-12 is just a hot mess right now. Like, I think there are some really good teams there. But how do you make sense of USC destroying Utah with Matt Fink? Utah is a preseason Pac-12 favorite. And then getting basically run off the field against Washington, who then looked completely lost against a Stanford team that had looked completely lost pretty much all season until last night. I mean, there's just so little insight I feel like you can glean from from, from what has happened on the field so far in the Pac-12. But I agree, I'm with you. Just the nature of the program, the situation right now where, where you have a lame duck head coach, you'll eventually have a new athletic director who's going to hire a new head coach. Um, I, I just have a hard time seeing uh, USC, I wouldn't say getting up for this game, but everything coming together, them coming out fired up and playing their best game of the season um, in a situation like this. I, I just have a hard time seeing that happening. Yeah, but for the record, USC is 79th nationally in yards per carry and 88th nationally in yards per carry allowed. So that's that's not a good dynamic going on the road at night when you know maybe the weather's a little bit dicey. Certainly it's going to be you know in the 60s and 50s. If there's... there's <laughs> If there's any elemental adversity at all, I would assume that USC will be in big, big trouble. Um, I don't think they handled that all that well. And it's like, look, if Notre Dame wins this game, we're, we're cert- we have to be at the point, like for how much gnashing of teeth there was after the Georgia game, Notre Dame at 5-1 and one and ranked in the top 10 is exactly where this team should be, uh, is yes. it not? And, you know, we talked about at the beginning, but, you know, going to Michigan right after that or after the bye after that, Michigan's going to come off what's probably going to be, I don't want to call it a loss, but it's going to be a very tough game at Penn State that's probably going to be under the lights. Um, so, I mean, you could get a reeling Michigan at that point, too. I don't know. Now, if Michigan were to beat Penn State, I'm sure that gives them a second wind, and they realize, hey, we may have lost one game here at Wisconsin, but we've got as good a chance as anyone to win the Big Ten. But um, I think they're they... – uh, you Did you watch the Iowa game or no? Please I actually did watch that one. Um... <laughs> oh, God. The uh... – uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think highly of Michigan, but, you know, they only have one loss for as bad as they've looked. And if they were to beat Penn State, which I don't think they will, but if they did, uh, you've got a team that's going to be buoyed by confidence uh, getting Notre Dame under the lights oh, at yeah, home. No but question. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Notre Dame, I mean, I think they're going to beat USC, and I, I frankly think they're going to beat Michigan. But um, I think the circumstances around that Michigan game will largely be dictated by how Michigan looks against Penn State the week before uh, while Notre Dame has a bye week. Yeah, I mean, there's not to get way too far ahead of ourselves, but I mean, b- before the season started, you know, the the losses I picked were Michigan and Georgia. Um, Michigan, I 
like I was way off on them. I thought they would just be a lot better than where they are. And I mean, I had people. Yeah. I mean, I had people inside Notre Dame tell me like, what's the, like, what's up with Josh Gaddis? Why does everyone think he is great? Um, and I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe I just bought into some hype that I shouldn't have there. Um, cause it's, it's just off there. They're a very disjointed program to watch offensively. And Notre Dame is, um, they're in a position now where they, they don't lose games they shouldn't lose anymore. They don't make dumb mistakes. I mean, let, yesterday I think they had one penalty, which is like kind of like a, a marker of are you well coached or are you not? And Notre Dame has not been great with penalties this year, but um, I thought it was it was sort of a testament to okay, this team is is pretty locked in at the moment. Um, and you know, I think God, I don't know what the the line the preseason line for the Michigan game was, but I'm assuming they were probably like three, four, five point favorites. But I mean, at this point you would have to assume that Notre Dame will be favored. Um, if the next two weeks go the way they think they will, where Notre Dame beats USC and then Michigan probably splits um, the next, I don't know. I don't think they're off this week, but um, okay. Yeah. Beat Illinois and then lose to Penn state. You would think that Notre Dame would be, um, you know, three, four, five point favorites. Subtract three for being a road team. It's going to be probably under the lights with 107,000 fans, but um, I would think they'd be a small favorite regardless of the situation. If if Michigan's coming off a really bad loss, a big loss, I should say, to Penn State, then I could see Notre Dame being maybe as much as a touchdown favorite, depending on how they look against USC. But yeah, I, I, I think Notre Dame should win that game. I think the experts in Vegas think they should win that game. Uh, I, I expect them to be favored. Yeah, it's a strange outlook the rest of the season because I, I feel like the, we're on a, a three-week run of the rest of the schedule looks worse and Stanford, worse. Stanford um, uh, might be the saving grace on, <laughs> against all odds. That, yeah, maybe. It's just like I that's like a matchup problem for me. If you're down six or seven offensive linemen for the year, I don't I don't think you want to deal with Khalid Kareem and Julian O'Quara. Um, Duke is kind of mediocre which is, I think, better than I thought they would be. Virginia Tech is worse than I thought they would be. Navy at this point, I think Notre Dame kind of has Boston a Boston College, a lot that. of dudes. And Boston College lost they did. Lo- lost they to Kansas by 24. Oh, um, let's, let's not bury the lead here. <laughs> yeah. So it just, it's a, you look at the dynamic the rest of the way, and I, I, I hate the, oh, you don't play anybody type of stuff, but. Notre Dame's schedule is just a lot softer than I think anybody thought it would be, or at least at least I thought it would be. Um, you know, Georgia is as good as advertised, maybe even a little bit better, um, but everyone else I think is a, pretty much a step back, and that that sort of shapes up to you know we're kind of in the eleven and one, ten and two mode as you know ten and two is kind of the floor on the season. Whereas I thought when the season started, you had some eight and fours out there, a lot of nine and threes. I was sort of torn between ten and two, nine and three. At this point, it's it's kind of hard to sit there and see I how Notre Dame could be a part of that losses. too. Is the questions we had about the defense coming in, which um, I don't want to say they've erased so far because they've only played a month of football, but they've looked really good doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I did just find uh, a summer article from Twenty Four Seven Sports looking at the preseason lines for Michigan's biggest games. Uh, they were six point favorites against Notre Dame in the preseason, but I'm going to read all of them to you because this is always fun to read in retrospect. Uh, <laughs> The Army game, 17.5, which actually I think they end up being 20-something point favorites going into that game. The Wisconsin game, they were five-point favorites. We all know what happened in that one. 
Iowa, they were 12-point favorites. They didn't even score 12 points against Iowa, but they did win. And uh, where's the other one? Oh, four and a half at Penn State. That's surprising. Uh, and, they were oh, favored by four and a half at Penn State. 13 and a half versus Michigan State, who until last night gave up like two points per game. And they here's the, the best one. Three and a half point favorites against Ohio State. So Vegas. Oh, my God. Uh, opposing coaches. Everyone was very high on this Michigan team. And... Look, they only have one loss, but um, I don't think they've looked anywhere near as good as a lot of people thought they would be this season. No, no, it's just it's a very disjointed offense right now, which I well, it's interesting. But Dom and USC, I mean, different programs, different circumstances, different coordinators. We're talking about two of the the bluest of blue bloods that run student body left, student body right, pro style, ninety nine percent of the time, and they both went out and hired very young first. Uh, well, not in Graham Harrell's case, but very young play callers as offense coordinators to install the spread for a group of kids on both rosters that weren't exactly recruited to that. And I think you've seen some of the the, the misfits, if you will, uh, mismatches uh, on Michigan where they are loaded at receiver. They have a lot of four- and five-star kids who are going to be playing in the NFL one day, and they just have not done a great job of getting those guys the ball at all so far this season. I think USC's done a little bit better of a job, but that's also a, a different adjustment, I guess, if you will, uh, for Notre Dame because, uh, like, you, you – you're not playing the same kind of offenses that you're used to playing with these two teams year after year. Yeah, it's really venturing into like bad LSU territory in terms of the level of receiver talent that they have, and they don't know how to use it. Um, it's just it's it's difficult to watch. I mean, they've recruited so well at those spots, and they can't do anything uh, with it. So yeah, it's um, Notre Dame season has sort of taken a I think a, an optimistic turn here in the last couple of weeks, uh, and that's. You know, coming out of Georgia, I don't know if you felt like Notre Dame was as good or maybe a little bit better than people thought at that point. I thought that, you know, as well as they played at Georgia, I felt like, you know, with you had to factor in the fact that they abdicated the running game to beginning with to begin. And they're sitting there thinking like, okay, maybe, is Notre Dame not as talented as up front as maybe I thought or they should be? And then you need the sort of the, the Chase Claypool fumble recovery to, to get your touchdown there. And I, I don't know if Notre Dame proved a lot other than it had a lot of grit and mental toughness against Georgia, but I do think just the way the schedule is shaping out and how they played or against Virginia, how they played against last week, last weekend against Bowling Green, I think that it sets up pretty nicely. I think that Notre Dame is getting closer and closer to sort of like a known quantity in college football this season, which is which is tough to do when you're dealing with a bunch of teenagers running around that may or may not listen. I think Notre Dame is. That that may be one of the surprises of the season for me. It's just how locked in Notre Dame appears to be. I, I came out impressed with that Georgia game. Uh, I mean, they play a lot better than I thought they would, and we're a lot closer to winning that game than I thought they would would be. And you know, I come out of that game, and again, I know it's early, but I, I'm thinking, you know, if they stay healthy, they they should win all of their games the rest of the year and go 11 and one with a six point loss to Georgia, which, as we've said a hundred times on the show already, is a great season, whether that qualifies you for the playoff or not. Um, known quantity, I think, is a good way to put it, um, especially last week. Um, that was a, a game that uh, I think lesser locked-in teams would be very vulnerable in, going up against a good Virginia defense, uh, not playing a great first half, coming off a really crushing loss, and they just physically overwhelmed Virginia in the second half of that game. And this week, again, Blaine Green, but did what exactly what you're supposed to do uh, from a physical standpoint to not leave any doubt about who the better team is uh, on the field and who one of the top 10 teams of the country are. And I think 
as long as you can continue to do that, as long as you stay healthy on defense, uh, I mean, you're going to have more than a chance to win every game. You're going to be favored to win every game the rest of the season. So um, uh, USC, again, is a wild card, but I have a hard time seeing the Trojans come in and doing basically what they did in 2011, which I think Notre Dame was a favored in that game. They were. Um, which obviously became kind of the turning point of the Brian Kelly era, for better or worse. But uh, USC came in that night, shocked everyone with a really decimated roster by sanctions. Lane Kiffin was trolling everyone afterward. Um, and they just pretty much, you know, ran it up and down Notre Dame's throats all night and looked like a different program. I, I, I don't know if you can just turn it on like that, regardless of the talent in, in your locker room year to year. Um, but I, I do think, you know, games like that are always in the back of the minds with anyone associated with Notre Dame because they know how dangerous this team can be, regardless of their record. I, I just have a hard time seeing it happening. We've seen some really good and really not so good USC teams in our time covering uh, the series, Pete. And let's go down memory lane for a second. What is your favorite memory of those uh, of that matchup? And now that I realize you were covering one before I was on the beat, I have a feeling um, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. So let's go from the uh, from the Brian Kelly era. What's yeah, your favorite? Gonna say, you're going to take away the the Bush push game um, in terms of like <laughs> incredible moments. Um, the uh, yeah, ten year contract extension for almost winning a game. That's the loudest sweet. I have ever heard Notre Dame Stadium by far. Um, man, from the Brian Kelly era, I mean the the game in 2017 was pretty wild. Just like what a massacre that was. The you know, the streak breaker in 2010 when I think it was Ronald Johnson dropped a wide open pass in the rain. Um, that was a that was a big deal at the time because, like, Notre Dame was, you know, the first season of Brian Kelly was, like, was a little bit all over the place. You're just not really sure what's happening. Um, for them to win that one was, was significant. It sort of gets lost because um, that season was not great. Uh, they had an awesome bowl performance against Miami and El Paso. Um, the Utah game, the Army game in Yankee Stadium was all significant, and USC was playing a backup quarterback in that game. So those were those are pretty significant. I don't, I don't know if there's been like, you know, the 2012 obviously was, was huge. Um, cause that put Notre Dame in the national championship game. So I'd say that that's gotta be one from the Brian Kelly area, but I, but I, you know, the 2010 game was sort of sneaky important and just sort of getting some, a winning feeling back around this place. Cause it, it had not had much of it to that point. How about you? Yeah, you know, 2010 is interesting. I, I did not cover that one. I didn't get on the beat till 2011. But, you know, as you were saying it just now, my memory was kind of being jogged. And you forget, like, how, I don't want to say monumental, but, like, the perce- the perception gap between the two programs before then was so wide. I mean, we're talking about the Charlie Weiss era against, like, the Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush eras, where, you know, this is a team that was going 11-1 and and, and at the very least competing for a national championship every single year. So for Notre Dame to, to, to win in 2010, and then I know they lost in 2011, but to, to be favored going into 2011 showed you how quickly rivalries like this can, can, can take a turn uh, perception-wise. Uh, I, I will not say 2013 when our, our friend of the pod, Andrew Hendricks, came in in the second half and led Notre Dame to 30 total yards in a dud of a night game, and they won 14-10, and we were half asleep in the media room, and Ed Odron comes out talking probably at normal volume for him. And woke us all up by telling us how much he loves Silas Red and what that kid's all about. Uh, that, that was, was memorable. That was very Michigan Iowa. <laughs> that was very Michigan Iowa. Um, I think you know uh, Notre Dame fans that I remember writing this that night came with, came away with a new appreciation for Tommy Reese after that night because that offense just could not click without him 
running the show at quarterback that night. Um, I'll go with 2012. I mean, everything about that season was so out of nowhere. Uh, you forget they were, you know, I hate to term, toss around the term irrelevant around Notre Dame, but in the national picture, like the, every year you had to go through the same question of, will they ever be good again? Can they ever compete? They're never going to do this. And, I mean, they weren't even preseason ranked that year. And USC was a preseason number one with Matt Barkley coming back. Oh, yeah. And for that, those shoes to kind of be flipped around and, and for those two programs to find themselves in the situation that they did on that night with Notre Dame having a goal line stand and, and having Theo Riddick run all over USC to, to, to win that game by nine points and clinch a BCS title game berth. Uh, that that's a moment I won't be forgetting anytime soon. 17 does stand out, though, for different reasons because uh, that was surreal to see just how overwhelmed USC, or, uh, you know, really, they won the Pac-12, so I'll say it, a good USC team, uh, just how overwhelmed they were uh, by Notre Dame. I mean, I think 49-14 was the final, and it probably could have been worse. I mean, oh, that was God. still with Brandon Wimbush at quarterback. It was still a an offense that hadn't really got on track yet, but they had the best offense line in the country. They had 33 trucking, Josh Adams running through people, uh, and they were able to just run it down people's throats. And to see them do that against a program like USC was was, was something pretty remarkable. Yeah, that was like a Mortal Kombat game. Where just, they just ripped USC's spine out. It was bad. And, I mean, it was got, you know, for Notre Dame, it was sort of up there with the Michigan blowout in 2014 to bring it back to Brian Van Gorder. Uh, when they shut them out in terms of just how euphoric Notre Dame stadium was, they just were loving every second of it. So yeah, it's uh it's Saturday night could be another one like that. You, I think you have a chance to really sort of turn the knife a little bit on arrival, which you don't get a lot uh, of chances to do if you're Notre Dame. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be a fun one. Will you, will you be joining me in South Bend next Saturday? TBD. I'll be uh, in the Carolinas throughout the, the, the week, working on a few other stories and, um, TBD. Uh, maybe we'll have an answer for our Thursday podcast for okay. subscribers only. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this <laughs> week's uh, reaction podcast on the Shamrock brought to you by The Athletic and brought to you by myself, Matt Fortuna, and our producer, John Hayes. Thanks again for listening. You can rate, review, subscribe our to our show on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, please give us whatever feedback you like, and uh, we will be back later this week with a bonus episode for athletic subscribers featuring Bruce Feldman. Thanks for listening.